setting fire to the stoner stereotype, sparking up candid conversations with cannabis researchers, entrepreneurs, and advocates. Educator, author, and advocate Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Please welcome the host of Burning Issues, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Hey, Cannabis Radio listeners, welcome back to Burning Issues, where we burn away the cannabis myths with science. As many of you know, I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, author of the Oxford University Press book, Understanding Marijuana. I pen the Ask Dr. Mitch column for high times, and I'll soon be back at the University at Albany, State University of New York. Today, we'll chat with a cannabis legal scholar who works in the trenches, Laura B. Laura got her law degree at the University of Vermont, but she's way more than just an attorney. She's a partner at Rose Law Group, where she's also director of business and corporate transactions. She's been spearheading the Cannabis Crusade in Phoenix, Arizona, as well as across the U.S. She's co-chair of Women's Grow Phoenix Chapter, as well as a member of the National Cannabis Industry Association and the National Cannabis Bar Association. She also advises lots of folks about all the crazy ins and outs for forming a business where cannabis sales are legal. Laura Bianchi Esquire, welcome to Burning Issues. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me. Hey, do you mind sharing your personal tale of how you ended up in the cannabis space? (laughs) Sure, sure. It was actually by accident, although I think it was something I was most likely destined to be. When cannabis was first, our medical program was first legalized in Arizona back in 2010, we had several clients who came to us and and wanted us to comment and review the rules that were going through the administrative process and being developed by the Arizona Department of Health Services. So being a a business corporate transactions attorney, I have a lot of attention to detail, and I started to help with that. And uh, by the end of that process, I knew those rules backwards and forwards. So somehow... (laughs) That's how my cannabis career began. Um, but obviously, once I got into the industry, it evolved into something much, much more as I learned, you know, the incredible benefits of, of not only the plant, but, but from a business perspective as well. So it's been an exciting adventure. Um, it's sort of like dog years. I feel like you learn very quick. It's a steep, steep climb, um, but it's definitely been rewarding. And it's, uh, it's now my primary focus, and it's something I'm very proud of. Oh, it's really amazing all the stuff you guys have done. I know you were behind closed doors in some of the Arizona stuff. Can you sort of give us the big pluses of 205 as you see it? Sure, absolutely. I mean, the biggest plus to me is the allocation of the revenue. There are a lot of departments in a lot of areas in Arizona that need that need revenue, and we've not been able to raise taxes, especially when it comes to education, and we're 47th in the nation. So if Prop 205 passes on an annual basis, the education system will see upwards of $50 million, which is a, a huge benefit for teacher salaries, K through 12. Another positive, it will take over $400 million, again, annually out of the criminal market. Obviously, we are a border state, and the cartels are devastating to many in in Arizona as well as in Mexico. And so taking out, you know, making that big of a dent in their industry when it comes to trafficking cannabis into into the United States is huge. You know, another thing is from a regulatory point of view, the individuals who are in this industry want structure. They want to know what the rules and regulations are. How do they comply? How to become successful business owners? And this would actually set up an entirely new governing body 
that would regulate, control, and handle the enforcement and compliance side of the medical and adult use industry, which from my perspective is, is, is one of the most important as well. There's a lot of gray areas. There's a lot of twists and turns. There's a lot of unknowns because we're a new and emerging industry. So having a, a better structured you know, entity at the helm and having rules and regulations that make sense from a, a you know, community perspective, but also from a business perspective, means a lot to me as well as many of my clients. So I've got acquaintances who I swear no law is good enough. Can you tell me what, what is some of the grousing you're hearing and what we might be able to tell these folks to get them to make the right decision anyway? Sure. I mean, you know, I hear complaints from both sides. And unfortunately, as much as politics is not fun, you're never going to get a perfect law. It just doesn't happen. There are compromises that have to be made. And this is the process. I mean, we would love to see decriminalization, of course. But, you know, this is this is sort of the baby step. We're taking bites out of the apple to getting to a place where where cannabis is completely legal and treated much like alcohol and tobacco and some of these other things. But, you know, it's a jump that you can't normally make right away. So we've got to take steps. And I think this is a well structured, well-intentioned, well-thought-out initiative that does that. Um, the opposition, you know, there's, there's a lot of fear-mongering going on, it's something we expected, but, you know, they tend to sell that this is going to lead, you know, it's a gateway drug, our kids are going to be on drugs, they're going to have too much access to cannabis, things like that. And, you know, uh, they've made claims that the initiative doesn't protect employers or doesn't protect our DUI laws. And, and quite frankly, those, those allegations are just wrong. If you read the initiative and the language of the initiative, none of those things are factual. And, and that's really the number one thing I urge people to do. Read the initiative. Take a look at it. See what it says. See what's actually contained in it. And I think most people will come to the same conclusion as I have. Um, but, you know, it's a political debate. So there's a lot of sound bites and we want it to fit on a bumper sticker. And <laughs> It's sort of that just say no, just say yes. And, and it's, you know, it's much more complicated than that. Um, but I do think that it's, it's not only good for, for Arizona, those that are in the industry here. It's good from a business perspective. It's good from an economic perspective. It brings jobs. It brings tax revenue. There's a lot of really positive benefits. And, and again, it provides plenty of protections for employers. It does not prevent the state from, uh, you know, prohibiting people from operating cars and vehicles and anything else while impaired. You know, it, it's the, I think the language is very clear on what's true and what's not. And it's, you know, it's important that people read it for themselves. I do want to emphasize to everybody listening that this initiative is extremely accessible. It's funny how I have literally no legal training and some would say less than none given some of my <laughs> legal experiences. But the, the, the clincher is that you can read this like any kind of voter and, and become super informed and it really does uh, have that kind of advantage to it that I, I cannot say the same for a lot of things that are that are out there. I'm curious, is there an ideal sort of medical marijuana law or uh, tax and regulate system that you'd sort of love to see in the future? You know, from my perspective, I like regulated programs. Um, That doesn't mean that some of the programs that are a little less regulated are bad or or something terrible is going to happen. But again, I think from a business and competition perspective, it's always better to have a, you know, a medical and adult use and, and have limited licensing and have, you know, rules and regulations that keep everyone sort of going in the same direction. I think it's better for consumers. I would like to see the, the rules and regulations, though, be a little bit more business friendly. I think sometimes when politicians sit down and, and you know, look at these initiatives, they, they have so much sort of unrealistic fear of the plant that they don't look at it from a business perspective. And to me, that's what this is. It's a, it's a great business. 
the medical side provides a plant that, that has benefits we don't even know of yet and really provides something to the patients in Arizona. And so I'd like to see the, you know, the business side of it come out, have it be well-structured. You know, we need banking. We need all these different things that every other typical traditional business in the world has. And I'd like to see those things really come to the cannabis industry and the laws and the initiatives reflect that so that people aren't sort of, yes, you're in a legal industry, but you don't really have all the benefits of it. To me, that's unfortunate. And in fact, I feel like it's destined to fail then if you really don't give them the support they they need. Absolutely. You don't want things to be unclear. I mean, you know, the hardest part of this industry is trying to figure out those gray areas. We don't have case precedent. You know, no two programs are alike. There's a lot of differences and a lot of difficulties. And and so it's, you know, the more that I've got a structure in place – business owners are spending a lot of time and a lot of money to get into this industry. So they want structure. They want to know what they have to do to comply, to stay in compliance and focus on the success of their business. They don't want to be guessing from a regulatory and compliance perspective. So the more we can have in place, to me, the better. We've had some controversial folks donating to the other side. I'm wondering if you're comfortable saying anything about that. Sure, absolutely. Um, You know, yes. So it's disappointing, but I think it also sort of unveils um, the propaganda behind a lot of what the No campaign has been spreading. We have a Chandler-based pharmaceutical company who makes an extremely, extremely addictive opioid product and who actually has uh, in process synthetic cannabis. And they recently donated a half a million dollars to the No campaign. And, you know, I think that speaks volumes that the individuals that are really against this industry, it has nothing to do with our kids. It has nothing to do with drugs being horrible. It has to do with money and greed. The pharmaceutical industry does not want to see this. You know, they will take a put a huge dent in their industry, and that's why they're donating so much money. And I just think it it undercuts what you're saying. If cannabis is so terrible, then you can't really take the position that it's horrible if I'm providing it in a plant-based natural form, but in synthetic form, it's okay. It just it doesn't make sense. It's it's not an argument to me that that has you know a lot of water. So I think it it showed sort of the, the propaganda behind what they've been spreading, and I think it undercut what they're doing. It's not factual. So it's, uh, I think it damaged the, the no campaign most certainly. If you're enraging the fentanyl guys, you know you must be doing something right. Hey, <laughs> right. We've got to take a I'm making break. enemies over here. <laughs> I, uh, as my cannabis radio brother Vivian McPeak says, we've got to pause for the cause because there are flaws in the laws. <laughs> right back with Laura Bianchi of Women Grow and the Rose Group. Please stay tuned. More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. Play as Ted Growing, expelled botany sophomore and the biggest grower in town, only on Weed Firm Replanted. Available on the App Store and Google Play. It's a lot of work being the biggest grower in town. Maintaining a room full of plants while dealing with a slew of eccentric customers... From a hardcore partier to the curious neighbor next door. Is anybody home? Help me expand my bud business by unlocking new strains, customizing my grow room, and completing challenges that you can't get enough of. Grow your empire so big you can see it from space. Low on funds? Don't worry. Weed Firm Replanted is free to download. Download Weed Firm Replanted for free on the App Store and Google Play today. Get growing, Mr. Growing. While the feds and state are doing their dance, you still need to transact business and manage your cash. Go professional and let your customers pay with PayQuick. They pay you and they earn rewards points. 
PayQuick connects to your bank account for free and secures all of your transactions. And with PayQuick, you can pay your producers and processors for free. Plus, it pays to have it because it makes depositing your cash safe and so easy. No cops, no crooks, just compliance and comfort, knowing you have your cannabis business in check with PayQuick. PayQuick, the safe and easy way to pay. P-A-Y-Q-W-I-C-K dot com. Keep your cannabis cravings under control. Feed your mind with CannabisRadio.com. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues. Only on CannabisRadio.com. And we're back. Hey, we're here with Laura Bianchi of Women Grow and the Rose Group. It's Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Thanks for staying tuned to Burning Issues. Laura, I wanted to switch our focus here a minute and just talk about what's going on at Women Grow and sort of the need for um, organization in the cannabis movement. Sure. I mean, you know, the cannabis industry as a whole has been very exciting for women because really the past few years we have seen a huge number of women propel this industry forward. Um, it's a little bit out of the box. It's a little bit different. And because of that, it's helped a lot of women really achieve great heights in an executive uh, capacity and, and avoid that glass ceiling that, you know, permeates other industries. So Women Grow, you know, being a national professional networking organization, which let me say is absolutely open to men. This is not an anti-men thing whatsoever. We certainly enjoy our male counterparts and members. Um, But, you know, it brings together many different professional women in all aspects of the cannabis industry because there's much more than just the licensing. There are so many ancillary businesses and professional services that are required. And so it's a really great way to to network, to bring women together, to help lift each other up, to give investing opportunities, money opportunities, you know, and just really, again, take things out of sort of that male-dominated space and, and give women the opportunity to to make a dent in this industry as well. And you know, I think we're following, of course, you saw the Newsweek article, which was what last year, that said that this is the first billion dollar industry that may not be dominated by men. And, uh, and that's exciting. You've got a lot of really smart women who have a lot to offer and a lot to bring to the table. Ordinarily, women just on a, a general basis make, you know, approximately 80% of the healthcare decisions in their household. So especially for medical programs, I think that, you know, women have a lot to offer. They bring a lot to the table and it's, it's exciting. And Women Grow plays a huge part in bringing those women together. So it's been, it's been very fun. Oh, that's, hey, delightful for me to hear. And I did donate <laughs> to the Cannabis Minority Business Association when we had Ngaio sure. Bielam on the show. So I'm definitely going to throw $100 at Women Grow now that I know men are Thank allowed you. to join. <laughs> you are that's, definitely allowed to join. We welcome you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that's a heartwarming idea. <laughs> so we've seen Whoopi Goldberg kind of target some products for women's use. And I was curious mm-hmm. uh, if you had a take on on this idea about sort of cannabis-oriented products that are also in the in the women's. Well, you know, I think really the next sort of exciting bastion of this industry is, is branding and marketing. I mean, you don't have a huge amount of that right now. Again, it's a new industry and every state has such a different program. But I think, you know, the same as any other industry, there are opportunities to attract women. There are opportunities to attract men. You know, there are different groups and, and different individuals, and there's so many different products that cannabis can be used in. Um, so I, to me, it's very exciting. It allows business owners to not just be you know, what we think of as the dispensary, right? And they have glass and they have this and these sort of very boring, mundane things. It allows us to think outside of the box and there are skincare products.
products and there's different healthcare products and there are, you know, candies and tinctures and so many different ways to actually consume. And it gives another ancillary business or an opportunity for another ancillary business in marketing to these different groups. And so, you know, I think it's exciting. Anytime you bring the celebrity component to any industry, it's, you know, it helps and it, and it certainly, you know, pushes business forward. But in this case, I think it's exciting because again, there is a lot, you know, a lot of success to be had and made in the marketing and branding of different products. And I think we are just on the cusp of seeing that it certainly has not taken off just yet. It is an exciting time. When I look at, uh, you know, big epidemiological data sets, usually the percentage of women who use cannabis tends to be lower men. I'm curious if you feel like that stigma, is that a natural thing? Is there something that uh, we could do to sort of make sure women aren't uh, suffering from prejudice if they're cannabis users? You know, I think some of that is stigma. Um, and I also think that a lot of that is changing because there are now so many different methods of consumption. Um, you know, it, smoking cannabis for a lot of people, women included, is just not a preferred method. For some it is, but there are so many different ways now and so many different strains and types of cannabis and different components that help with, it's no longer, you know, just pain focused, but there's things for nausea, different female issues, you know, sleeping, pain, all these different things that women experience. And so I think, again, the more that we educate, the more that we inform, the more that we help everyone, including women, understand the benefits of these different types of cannabis, the different ways that you can consume and take that stigma away. I think the more you will see women consuming as well. And, and, you know, I see those statistics, but I will tell you when, when we go to these conferences and, you know, I, I go around the country and I speak and do these things, there's a huge amount of women who are, who are not only consumers, but are very passionate about the plant. So I think a lot of that is already changing. Oh, that's a delightful thought. I, I appreciate you letting us know. Can you give us a feel for what one of these conferences might be like? Sure. Um, they have changed drastically since I first started going. Um, and I think you would be surprised to see they are extremely professional. Um, again, there are so many different industries and, and parts of this business that are required that it's exciting to go. Not only do you have a you know huge slew now of different types of professionals who are speaking and providing their expertise and information and education, but normally they have large expo halls that have all the different, you know, cannabis companies and the entrepreneurs and what they provide. And it's, it's interesting to walk around. It really has become a legitimate business. It's exciting. Um, and it's fun to see it grow and change and evolve and expand every single year where these conferences are getting even more popular and more well done and more sophisticated. To me, that just means that we're doing something right and building this into an industry that will last for the long haul. What a, what a neat idea there. You know, have to be continuing education requirements for lawyers to stay licensed. I'm curious, can you envision a, a cannabis-oriented continuing ed thing for attorneys sometime? <laughs> sure. I think it's very, I mean, it, it's, it's a huge thing that's needed. I will tell you that. Um, a big part of, you know, from the transactional perspective, these types of transactions just tend to take a little bit longer um, for a number of reasons. But number one being, we still don't have a large number of attorneys who are well-versed in the cannabis industry. And when you are dealing with contracts and agreements and leases and, and all these different things that go into these types of transactions, not being familiar with the cannabis industry laws is a huge downfall because then I'm educating both sides and that, you know, makes things a little bit less efficient. So the more that we've got lawyers who really focus on and understand the rules and regulations and the law, the, the better these transactions go, the more, again, that we function as a legitimate business where they have opportunities, you know, to consult with professionals who actually know this law as well as, you know, business corporate transactions, litigation, all these different areas. So I, I certainly would be excited to see it come.
that is kind of mind blowing. <laughs> so I'm guessing these are these are different in different states. Would that be a fair thing to say? Sure, sure. It have to be program specific, but some of these things are a little bit more. 50,000 foot as well. You know, a lot of the concerns or the pitfalls or the things that you have to consider, you know, are not specific to the state. They're specific to the cannabis industry. And so, you know, as a big part of what I do is just dealing with lawyers in in many different states and helping them with that 50,000 foot picture of seeing how that things have to be structured, the things you have to consider, take into account that they just, you know, wouldn't know because they don't have experience in the cannabis industry. I mean, it sounds like our days of fantasizing about just a, a grow in the backyard and a, and a storefront. <laughs> <laughs> yep, vastly different. <laughs> it's very different. I agree. Well, so I'm curious. There's some controversy right now about selling uh, CBD-only type strains and maybe even being able to do that across state lines. Do you have any insights sure. or opinions about that? Well, you know, again, I think that you've got a lot of people, and it depends on where the CBD is actually derived from. It gets derived completely from the plant, if it's synthetic. You know, unfortunately, I think because, you know, CBD doesn't have the THC component, and so a lot of people see it as a as a legal form of cannabis, it's sort of like the vitamin industry, right? It's not well-regulated. It's not well-controlled. So it's difficult to know what's in what, what's real, what's not, what's effective, what's not. And again, I like to see regulations on all components, whether it's, you know, we're dealing with hemp, CBD, the THC components, different strains. Again, I think it's better for consumers if you understand exactly what you're consuming, you know, where it's from, the benefits, the negative things, all that. Again, like any expanding industry, you're certainly not going to get hurt. Nobody's going to overdose. But I think if, you know, if you're taking this, especially from a medical perspective, the efficacy and the dosing and those sorts of things, it's important to know where these different products are coming from. And I think you're seeing even from an industry perspective, they're sort of cracking down and saying, you know, hey, not at, not all products are alike, and let's tell you why. Same as any other, you know, sort of healthcare, uh, nutraceutical-type product. Well, we've had an extraordinary time today with uh, Laura <laughs> Bianchi Esquire. She's a partner at the Rose Law Group. A uh, member of Women Grow and of the National Cannabis Industry Association. Thanks so much for being on the show, and please stay tuned for our next segment on Burning Issues. More Burning Issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now About a game for your phone gonna make you say wow The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash Little by little your empire grows large Put different celebrities inside your entourage You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Chichin Chong Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong The name of the game is Himping, that's the point Download and play while you light yourself a joint the business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh, yeah. Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber Vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way.
From dabs to chibas, sativas to indicas, we roll out a whole concentrate of fresh new content every week. It's like going from the greenhouse to the dispensary. CannabisRadio.com Welcome to Empire, presented by C.W. Hemp, a weekly installment dedicated to exploring the non-psychoactive side of the cannabis plant. Once a cornerstone of the American economy, hemp has been used in over 25,000 products, including paper, textiles, construction materials, health food, and fuel. Now, tune in and discover all there is to know about this wonder crop making a historic comeback. Empire, presented by C.W. Hemp, starts now. And welcome back, Cannabis Radio listeners and Burning Issues fans. Here we are with Hempire, the section of our show where we explore all things hemp. Whether it's fiber, food, or pharmacy, the hemp plant continues to amaze humans across the millennia. We've had medical uses from back in the day of Asian Emperor Shenang all the way in 2800 BC, and we even have them today. So thanks for joining us on Hempire. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, author of the Oxford University Press book, Understanding Marijuana, High Times columnist and member of the advisory board at the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Today's guest is hemp legend himself, Jeff Whaling. Jeff is the president of the Pennsylvania Hemp Industry Council, and he's also a founding member of the Coalition for Access Now. Welcome to Hempire, Jeff. Glad to be here. So can you give us uh, what's news in Pennsylvania and legal status for hemp? Certainly. As you may know, our governor signed the industrial hemp bill, which is now Act 92, last Wednesday. So hemp is now legal in Pennsylvania. Woohoo! Exciting times. We have many of our farmers, people who are interested in the manufacturing and processing of hemp, just waiting for our regulations to get in place. That process is going to start on Thursday. That's great. Hey, can you give us the lowdown on the Pennsylvania Hemp Industry Council? It was founded earlier this year by two of our major advocates, Erica McBride and Les Stark. Les has been a historian on hemp for some time, was writing about the crop some 20 years ago, published a book, and has been pursuing bringing legalized hemp back to Pennsylvania for most of that time. That's a stunning amount of effort. Hey, can you let us know about the Coalition for Access Now? As you may know, the story of young Charlotte Figgy, which started the really momentum of CBD. Paige Figgy, her mother and I, founded the Coalition for Access Now three years ago and have been working with families across the states to pass CBD legislation We have done so in 18 states with great support of all of our families, and we now have bills in front of Congress with Congressman Perry from Pennsylvania introducing the Charlotte's Web Act, and that is moving through, and we have a commitment from Speaker Paul Ryan that he will pass that legislation this session. That's just astounding, and I can't thank you enough. What a momentous uh, amount of work, but what great impact we're having. It it has impacted people in such a profound way, not only the families that first came to light who were looking for a therapy similar to Charlotte's that was suffering from Dravet syndrome, but now we have families 
from all brain trauma, neurological disorders, and other neurological disorders that really reach into concussions and CTE. We now have former football players and former NHL players who have come forward and are looking for the same sort of therapy. So now our audience and our people who are interested in this are reaching out to the realm of caring, our sister 501c3, and trying to really move this issue along quickly so that we can get, we estimate more than 3 million Americans could benefit from CBD therapy. And I think that's an underestimate, to tell you the truth. It's just amazing all the good that you guys can really do here. Well, and I think research is being done every single day in laboratories, and we have so much to discover on CBD and and the endocannabinoid system. So let me turn back to industrial hemp for a minute. What's the difference between that and sort of other types of cannabis? What kind of things do you have to clear up when people hear about the name hemp? Well, you know, I think that history has woven the two of them somewhat together, so we have to break apart that fabric. Industrial hemp, by far, is going to be a leader in sustainability. It is a crop that uh, can help revolutionize the world. Every part of this crop, which grows in a field, can grow as high as 12 feet tall, can be used either from for a food product to salad dressings, all the way to building an automobile or your home. It's so amazing. So I know a lot of folks tend to think of textiles, but you're emphasizing some of these food and other things. Could you elaborate on any of those? I can. And, you know, certainly the Chinese have done a very good job in capturing the fabric market. So I think that if we are going to be wise in expanding the market in the United States, we should look at the other uses and the dual purpose crops that produce both a seed head that is good for hemp hearts, as you might know, a very nutritious product, 100% digestible, as much omega-3, 6, and 9, perfectly matched as fish oil. You can press this seed to get that oil out of it to make salad dressings and dipping dressings, but you can also create body care items for it. And if you continue to process it, items such as paint and finishes and varnishes. It's incredible what you can do with the seed. And then there's the rest of the plant. So you can take off the fiber that's the outside. There are organizations right now that are looking at that fiber. It has the same properties as copper. So electricity and digital messaging is being tested uh, through it. It could replace fiber optics. And then you can take that same fiber and replace anything that is built with carbon fiber with it. Automobiles, BMW, Mercedes, Volvo are doing it today. It's just super amazing. And you mentioned Henry Ford actually built some cars out of this. Henry Ford built in 1941, built the very first hemp sedan, which was a combination of soy and hemp fiber. And if anyone goes on and searches out YouTube, they'll be able to see Henry Ford's him sedan, him taking an axe to the back of the vehicle, and it does not dent whatsoever. And many people don't know that Henry Ford also grew 40 acres of hemp on his Dearborn farm, and he used that to produce ethanol, hemp ethanol, to fuel all of his executive's cars. That's just amazing. I mean, if we can do it with corn, why not with hemp? Absolutely. 100% usable hemp consumes three times the CO2 than any other plant. 
It also helps to remediate the soil. It will take toxins out of the soil. We have seen and, and certainly know that around Chernobyl they planted hemp and it has helped to reduce naturally the nuclear waste that is in those soils. But we also know that it can stop erosion, has a tap root, and it certainly will aerate the soil at the same time. I mean, it's funny, people make a big deal about it being more eco-friendly than cotton or flax, but it's, it's way beyond that, it sounds like. It, it is, and I hate to use the expression, it grows like a weed. So do we have any big consumers of industrial hemp here in the States, things you can think of? There are many people who are dabbling in this. Big consumers, there are not yet. Certainly the CBD side of industrial hemp, which is the oil that is extracted, that is being used for products like Charlotte's Web, seem to be the driving leaders of the industry right now. We are starting to develop a fiber industry, but the difficulty in accomplishing it is twofold. We need to have processing plants that are established, and those could cost anywhere from 5 to $10 million. But most importantly, in order to commercialize industrial hemp in America, we need to have specific built harvesting equipment. There is no uh, equipment that is here, and I think that the world is waiting for America to revitalize industrial hemp and then uh, to become leaders again so that we can develop that equipment. I think of the old decorticator images. Is that something along the lines of what you're thinking with that? Well, that is the new sophisticated line. They're about 750 feet long. Decorticator actually will take about five tons of product a day and take it all apart into potentially 20 different components that will come out of this plant. It's truly, truly astounding. Well... Are there any quirks about growing hemp that you think sort of make it different from the stereotypical growth of medical cannabis? Well, I mean, obviously hemp can be grown outside, uh, field grown. It is a challenging plant in that it is very sticky. Um, Obviously, we used it in years gone by for rope, and there's a, a reason that it is challenging because of that toughness. Any commercial equipment today would end up being damaged uh, because it cannot process the hemp fiber. Um, as like So farmers have to be creative today in taking older equipment and then repurposing them, taking metal components out, putting rubber in, and then harvesting. As much as 2,000 acres can be done without equipment having to be completely cleaned out. That sounds really promising. Hey, we've got to take a moment here for our wonderful sponsors. We're talking to Jeff Whaling. Jeff is the president of the Pennsylvania Hemp Industry Council, and we'll be right back with more on Hempire. Hold on for more Hempire after you've grown to learn more about our sponsors. Educator, author, and advocate, Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. And I'm here to clear up the myths about cannabis and burn them away with science. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Dr. Kevin Hill. You can't ignore the fact that, like alcohol, Most people who use don't have a problem, so I think that you need to think about policy in that way while educating people properly about marijuana. I think that's the way to go. Burning Issues, only on CannabisRadio.com. 
boiling. Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up. I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct. Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber, doctor's order. Less heat, <laughs> more flavor. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now. Bought a game for your phone, gonna make you say, wow! The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash. Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash. Little by little, your empire grows large. Put different celebrities inside your entourage. You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Chichin Chong. Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong. The name of the game is him, think that's the point. Download and play while you life yourself a joint. The business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh, yeah. Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. Thousands of cannabis professionals convened this August in Portland, Oregon, to the city responsible for half a billion dollars in cannabis commerce. The Portland Expo Center hosts Indo Expo, August 6th and 7th. Endo Expo has seed to sale covered all weekend long with educational seminars and over 250 exhibitors, lights, nutrients, trimmers, extractors, greenhouses, cutting edge grow gear, genetics, smoking accessories, and more. Free admission for buyers, store owners, and MJ industry professionals. Visit www.indoexpo.com. Time to harvest more crop-tastic content on Hempire, only on CannabisRadio.com. And we're back for the Hempire section of the show. We're talking to Jeff Whaling, president of the Pennsylvania Hemp Industry Council and a founding member of the Coalition for Access Now. Uh, Jeff and I were just discussing some of the issues with growing hemp, and the, it's such a sticky plant. I think some folks might be confused. It's really from the resin, much like coactive cannabis. Is that the case? It is, but it also is the fiber on the outside of the plant that was originally used for the Conestoga wagons, canvas, and for rope. Wheels of rope that were used by the U.S. Navy in World War II. It is why hemp was revived pre-World War II to service the Navy. That product is, it was all done by hand in years gone by. Uh, They took that fiber and they stripped it off with knives and then they just spun it. Well, in order to use it today for the things that we can use it for, whether or not it's flooring in your house for, for fabrics or for weaving or for carbon fiber, it now needs to be split apart. And certainly we need to bring it to an industrialized level, which is going to take some time. It's amazing, though, all, all this potential. You allude to some of the use in World War II, and I know uh, a lot of folks were curious about the story behind hemp for victory. Can you tell us anything about that? Well, it was before that hemp was actually banned in the United States, but as we were going to World War II, there was an urgent need to have rope for the U.S. Navy and canvas for the military, and so there was a, a real push to revive the crop and to bring it back so that it could be once again used to our nation. And that was part of the Hemp for Victory program. 
It is astounding because you think about the Marijuana Tax Act being 1937, and it sounds like this film came out in the early 40s. That's correct. All right, and I should mention to folks, you can find this on YouTube, and it's, it's incredibly moving in its patriotism and music and urgings. Well, and it is funny how when the nation needs something that all of a sudden something that was believed not to be good all of a sudden is important again. And we are finding here in Pennsylvania, uh, industrial hemp was one of the largest crops. The first act in Pennsylvania was the Hemp Act, and that encouraged farmers to grow hemp to not only use for themselves, but also to contribute to the economy of our state. We had 100 mills along the Susquehanna River and in greater Lancaster County that did nothing but produce hemp. And ironically, many people have forgotten that we were a big grower, but when they hear the fact that we have townships and hemp field and hemp road in Lancaster County, people think, oh goodness, what did they do? Is that where they grew hemp before? People tend to forget, but we're happy to revive it and to reintroduce it to our state. That is astounding when you have hemp built into the names of the towns. That's delightful. Absolutely. When you mentioned some of the seed-related products, can you tell us anything about the market for seeds? Uh, Yes. So seeds can be used for both human consumption and animal consumption. People who may not think uh, about this, but people who fed birdseed this winter probably fed hemp not knowing that it came in from Canada. That same seed is highly coveted by people who are raisers of pigeons, highly nutritious for birds. From a human perspective, that seed is being used on salad dressings. It's ground down and put into, uh, made into protein powder. It can be further ground into making flowers. People put it in their smoothies or in their yogurts every single day, and you know it is highly beneficial. I mean, as you mentioned, that a new source for the omega-3, 6, and 9s, that's going to have some incredible cardiovascular impact without any of the risks we often have with fish oils about mercury or, or things like that. Correct. Hemp seed, hemp powder is available on most Whole Foods shelves today. That product is imported from Canada. We think that this product should be here, made in America and serving Americans. It is a $2.5 billion industry in Canada, and we think that those jobs should be here. Absolutely. That's a lot of money, even in Canadian dollars. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the, the Canadian market is now a little bit fearful of what's going to happen in Canada because there is such a spurt in growth and uh, need for reintroducing this crop as a rotational crop to add to the farmers here. And... They were only growing it for human consumption, but they now realize that they need to even change their regulations to allow for whole use of the crop, which is what is happening in most states here. I'm not sure if your listeners are aware of how much hemp is being grown right now, but Kentucky will grow about 5,000 acres this year. Colorado will grow about 4,000, and certainly Oregon and Washington will be growing a couple thousand acres. So we're slowly getting there, but we're nowhere near the 11 million acres that China has. Good point. You alluded to the CBD, and I think some folks are are curious, what are the limits on most of this industrial hemp? Well, in order for this crop to be considered industrial hemp, it can not have a THC level of higher than 0.3% THC. 
So it's absolutely negligent in its THC factor. But there are industrial hemp crops that are producing very high CBD levels, as high as 18%. And those are the products that are getting to families who are seeing this as an alternative therapy for seizure disorders. Yeah, that's just an evolutionary miracle. I, I love that stuff. That's superb. Well, and most people don't understand that we have an endocannabinoid system in our bodies, and obviously it uh, has been fed by something. And people are now seeing that with the addition of CBD, they are finding, you know, there's no psychoactive element. It is just a feeling of refreshment. It's as if our body has been deprived and is now looking for products like this. Oh, it is truly marvelous. And we've known for, you know, at least three decades now that, that CBD is not psychoactive the way THC is, and yet it still ended up in that strange Schedule One predicament. It has, but I think that we're going to see, as uh, Speaker Ryan and Congressman Perry have been moving this legislation forward, we're seeing more and more people who are coming around to realize that it isn't marijuana, it is not psychoactive, and that we should be trying to quickly get to the hands of people that are asking for it. I mean, in fact, when you talk about those long cords and the big, thick stems, that's really kind of counter to what we think of for medical cannabis. Oh, absolutely. The... The plants look um, greatly different. I mean, the industrial hemp plant is planted about seven inches apart like corn and can grow as high as 18 feet high. That is not what people are doing with medical cannabis, which has to be grown indoors in most states. And has those you know, large colas and really it's more about having a short, bushy plant rather than these long stems. Correct. Correct. That's good to know. Well, so I'm curious, are there, are there any books that you might recommend for listeners who are interested in hemp? Well, I have gotten most of my information uh, off the Internet, but I would encourage people to go to our Pennsylvania Hemp Industry Council website, which is org, And on that, we have a link, which is Get to Know Hemp and certainly the Congressional Research Report on Industrial Hemp and a number of the white pages that have been written by other states, including the one that I wrote for Pennsylvania. Ours really focuses on the farming aspect and what the potential is for farming as well as the challenges. Well, so Jeff, can you tell us how you got sucked into all this? Actually, I, like most Americans, saw the story of young Charlotte Figgy, and I... I guess took a step that people would be afraid to, but I reached out to the Stanley brothers and said, how can I help you? I came from Canada. We had industrial hemp in Canada. So I was curious why this was such a big issue here in the United States. But I learned what the challenges were. And that is where I met uh, Paige. I then met a number of the families who had uh, left their states and moved to Colorado to start getting access to CBD. I saw the results for myself. I heard the stories of these families and I thought we need to do something to help them. So I then came back to Pennsylvania and realized industrial hemp was part of the fabric of Pennsylvania and that it really needed to be revived for Pennsylvania farmers. So we decided to not only formalize the Coalition for Access Now, we created the Pennsylvania Hemp Industry Council, and here we are. It's wonderful. So what, can you give us a feel for this federal bill? So the federal bill, the Charlotte's Web Act, is uh, House Bill 1635. 
it is moving along nicely. We certainly would encourage people to, who want to support CBD and industrial hemp to contact their congressional delegations and their senators and encourage them to support their bills. Both the House and the Senate have both industrial hemp bills as well as CBD bills. So we would ask people to reach out to them. We really do believe that the CBD bill will be passed this year and that uh, industrial hemp will be right on its heels. It's a splendid thought, and I do want to encourage all the listeners, go ahead and and contact your representatives on this, because this could be super important, not only for the CBD, but maybe to get the hemp through relatively quickly, because obviously if they'll approve one, the other one is essentially a no-brainer. It's true, and the National Hemp Association and the Vote Hemp group, you can go to both of their websites. They both have petitions and ways to contact your local representative. They've made it very easy for you to connect with them and and show your support. Can you tell us the names of those groups again, Jeff? The National Hemp Association and the other organization is called Vote Hemp. Okay, well, thanks so much for joining us on Hempire. We've been talking with Jeff Whaling, president of the Pennsylvania Hemp Industry Council and a founding member of the Coalition for Access Now. Opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues only on CannabisRadio.com. And we're back. Thanks for joining us again on Burning Issues. Time for another chapter in self-compassion in the art of activism. Here's a portion of our show that focuses on taking good care of ourselves and each other. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, professor of psychology at the University of Albany State University of New York. As many of you know, I'm also the author of the Oxford University Press book, Understanding Marijuana. Words out that I'm doing couples therapy again, and in fact, I'm the second best couples therapist in the Capital District. The best one is my wife. A lot of folks have been asking about good tips for keeping a relationship together, and I just had a few ideas here based on actual science. Some of this comes from the Gottman Lab, where he's been following couples for literally over a decade to see basically who stays together and who ends up divorced. First of all, I'd like to pitch what therapists call the invariant prescription. Invariant just means it's the one that never varies. It's the recommendation we make to literally every couple who walks in the door. If you've got a relationship that you want to improve, you have to spend more time together. 
If you're a couple, you need a date night. If you're not getting along with a friend or a kid or a coworker, go out for lunch or a cup of tea. Spending time together gives bad relationships the chance to get better, and it's also a great way to make good relationships even better. Next, the 5 to 1 ratio. I've talked about this before. Regular Canvas listeners know that every relationship needs praise. Folks who stay together invariably have five times as many signs of thanks and appreciation and just general affection as they do critiques. So catch your partner doing something right. Catch your friend doing something right. Catch your kid doing something right. Your coworker. Oh, you get the idea. So it's the simple things that you're probably thinking but might not even be saying. Hey, thanks for making my coffee this morning. Hey, I really appreciate you taking the kids to the dentist. Hey, I love it when you do that. Okay? All the positive stuff that happens needs to get acknowledged. It's not that people don't know they're supposed to do it. It's not that they haven't been doing it all along. But now's the time to take notice and really offer the rewards. This is what gets that ratio up. So when you do have a criticism, it's not like that's all they hear is one critique after another. Now, when the critiques come up, that's just part of life. Not everybody can read everybody else's mind, but the key is to make sure you point to the behavior and not the person. A lot of times, the way to do it involves using I statements. So there's no name calling, no saying, you do blah 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 There's literally a format, I feel X when you do Y. I feel disappointed when you yell at me. Right? I haven't called somebody a yelling and screaming maniac. I'm just stating a fact about my own feelings. Note that I'm picking a feeling that's a soft emotion, disappointed. Right? A lot of times people run, and guys, I'm talking to you, to the angry ones. I feel mad when you <laughs> feel whatever. Right? Or I feel hostile. Right? But let's go to the underlying one. I feel sad. I feel afraid. I feel unappreciated. And then lay out exactly what it is they're doing, not a way that they are being. So I feel unappreciated when you leave your clothes on the floor. Right? A simple, straightforward way. Not, I feel that you're an asshole when you leave your clothes on the floor. Right? Again, we got to be in touch with what is a feeling. Sad, mad, glad, afraid, disgusted, surprised, right? Not that you are an asshole. That is not a feeling. So we want to keep that in mind, okay? Fight if you have to, but if you're going to fight, fight fair. So stick to these I statements. Definitely no name calling and no kitchen sinking, Now, what do I mean by kitchen sinking? It's when you start bringing in everything but the kitchen sink. So one minute you're talking about folding the clothes, and then suddenly people are bringing up something with the car, and then suddenly it's the way you looked at somebody else three weeks ago. It's hard to stay on topic if you can kitchen sink and get away with it. So we're going to have a discussion about a single topic, stay on that topic, and everything's going to be great. 
all in all, all I really ask is that we give each other the benefit of the doubt. Literally, make the situational attribution whenever you can. If somebody's late to see you, odds are high traffic was bad. It's not that they're trying to be rude. What's all this mean for you and your daily life? Well, I'm not going to turn this into a pitch for couples therapy, but people should always go sooner rather than later. Give all these things I mentioned a try and see what happens. If it works out, email me at 420research at gmail.com. So thanks for listening to Burning Issues. My continued gratitude to the Cannabis Radio Production Wizards and today's guest, Laura Bianchi of Women Grow and the Rose Group. Please join us again soon. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine at CanvasRadio.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Follow your heart and let the data be your guide. opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.